Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It's December 3rd, 2018, um, special edition of the Daily Standard Podcast, remembering President George H.W. Bush and joining me today, the founding editor of the Weekly Standard, Bill Crystal, and Andy Ferguson, uh, who has written a really powerful memory of working in the Bush White House. Thanks for joining me, both of you gentlemen. Great to be with you, Charlie. Well, Andy, I want to start off with 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 your piece, and I was really struck by the the anecdote that you tell about how e- even when it looked like President Bush was perhaps headed for electoral defeat, they didn't want to bring up his war service or the fact that he was a war hero. Just uh, talk to me about that a little bit. Well, it's kind of hard to uh, describe um, what it's like for somebody who hasn't been there to be in a, a, a large national political campaign that is suffused with panic. And um, that's that's really where they were. I went to work for uh, President Bush in uh, 1992 in January, which of course was his re-election year, and his popularity steadily declined as I, as I went about my work. Um, and of course he ended up, I think, with what, 36%? 38, I think. 38% yeah. of the vote. Um, and so there was a state of near constant terror that this that this thing was slipping away from uh, the president, who all of us admired greatly and and who deserved to be reelected in all of our estimation. Um, and he was running against this very audacious, dare I say, slick uh, Southern governor with great hair um, named Bill Clinton who was the new generation, the rising generation, the, you know, the, the, the first baby boom candidate who was really plausible. And uh, so the contrast that the Clinton people wanted to draw was between youth and old age. And um, that was exactly what the campaign decided that it wanted to avoid. And they thought any mention of the fact that Bush was the youngest fighter pilot in World War II and was highly decorated and was a genuine war hero um, would only highlight the youth and audacity of of his opponent rather than the maturity and wisdom and courage and strength of of President Bush. So it put all of us in kind of a bind, the people who really, really admired him, um, partly because of this, his his story, his personal story as a young man, um, because we weren't allowed to talk about it. We, We seriously were not supposed to mention World War II in any of the speeches. This is an extraordinary story, and, and this is why I wanted to talk with you ab- about it. We're talking about 1992, and you know, since, since we're in the period of, of now realizing how history revises its verdict, this is also one of those moments to remember that sometimes we don't appreciate certain things until uh, t- perhaps too late. And that whole – the whole question of how we remember the greatest generation, in 1992, it was for some reason too early – to celebrate that, and maybe in some ways, uh, President Bush was was a victim of that. And I was reminded this morning that we, as a country, did not get around to opening the World War II memorial until 2004, more than a decade later. And it wasn't really until then that I think America was ready to look back and say, "Okay, we have this entire generation of extraordinary men, and we." We never thanked them. We never honored them sufficiently. I, I know that both of you probably know I was very involved along with uh, Steve Hayes' brother, Dan Hayes, with something called the Honor Flight, where very belatedly we decided, you know, let's uh, mount a campaign to bring World War II veterans, fly them free of charge 
to their memorial in Washington, D.C., and I had a chance to spend time with the World War II veterans. And the one thing that uh, continually struck me was what a modest generation they were, how little they actually wanted to talk about themselves. And also, despite maybe our image that, that the country had given them these massive parades home, that it was really only in that last decade that America got around to really thanking them for their service. So, so Andy, your, your story about President George W. Bush, who is the last of that generation, you know, really the, pa- the passing of that generation, that it, in 1992, they just didn't want to talk about it. And as a result, I think uh, until very, very recently, we were not able to come to grips with, with the heroism and sacrifice of that generation. Yeah, and I wonder how much that's sort of standard, actually, in, in in a generational turnover. There's a sense that the younger generation looks at the older generation as it ages, and they have a feeling of exhaustion, and and you know that they, let's get on with it. There are new things, new things to try, new ideas to pursue, um, and that even regardless of the heroism of um, of the preceding generation, people want to kind of get on with their own. Um, their own comrades to do uh, what they want to do. Well, Bill, Crystal, I want to talk to you about no, that. Let me say, we're, I mean, oh, yes, go ahead. Sorry. No, I just I was struck at thinking about this just now. Yeah, my dad fought in World War II and uh, barely talked about it, and I think everyone wanted to move on, and we got into the Cold War so quickly that um, I, I want that I'll come back to that in a second, because I think that's also what strikes me. He was both the last World War II president, as Andy pointed out in his terrific piece, and the last Cold War president. And the mm-hmm. great thing about the greatest generation, in my mind, is they won World War II as you know 20-year-olds, 25-year-olds, and then they won the Cold War as uh, adults, as statesmen. I mean, Truman through uh, Bush, there were nine Cold War presidents. Uh, I, they had their flaws and limitations, and God knows, made mistakes. Uh, but I think America was well served by them. And I think almost all of them had actually f- fought in or served you know, somehow in World War II. I mean, Truman and Eisenhower in a different role from Kennedy and Nixon and the young people who had actually fought. Carter, I guess, is a little too young. And so he's the one who, the only one who really didn't have some World War II service of one kind or another in those nine presidents. But they are the presidents who led us through the Cold War and whatever the zigs and zags did a pretty darn good job of that too. So that's, you know, it is the 92 in that respect where George H.W. Bush's presidency is the end of an era in two ways, the last World War II president and the last Cold War president. The other point I'd make is that, um, well, maybe I'll leave it. I'll, I'll leave it at that. I, I just was always I was I was struck thinking about that, and I think there's a little bit, incidentally, the nostalgia, which is great for President Bush there and everyone on both sides uh, cheering. And one forgets how contentious the Cold War was mm-hmm. in those Reagan Bush years. Right, right. And uh, Andy and I remember it, and maybe you you even you do. You're a little younger, Charlie. Oh, yeah. Maybe you remember it too. And they they made some tough decisions against an awful lot of domestic uh, uh, complaints and uh, uh, criticism that uh, turned out to be vindicated by history. You know, on this interesting point, which someone should do a longer article on and sort of how generations think about the earlier ones and so forth, I've always thought, and this is just an instinct, I have never looked at it in detail, that Reagan's 84 speech at uh, at Normandy, the boys of Point de Hoc, mm-hmm. was a moment where sort of, they laid the predicate, I'm going to put it that way, 
for the re coming for the re uh, what's not evaluation but the honoring of the World War II vets and the, that was sort of the moment where something people hadn't talked much about and for some reason we were busy progressing into the future and you know and I don't mean that in a, in a snarky way there right. were a lot of good things that happened civil rights revolution and so forth sort of it became legitimate to look back and I suspect that helped launch the Stephen Ambrose stuff and the world you know all, all the stuff that and the thing the, the the honor flights you were part of Charlie I, I wonder how much that Reagan speech in 84 was kind of a moment of a pivotal it, moment there it, interesting question and I, I want to paraphrase uh, something that uh, that uh, president Bush said about himself, and I, I may get it uh, slightly wrong, but I think he said this to John Meacham, that he always thought that he was uh, sort of lost, uh, that his one-term presidency was lost between uh, the glory of, of Ronald Reagan and the controversies of of his uh, of, of his sons. And you look back on on his presidency, and it does seem a quiet, a much quieter time. Everybody didn't feel that way; it lived. Um, but in retrospect, looking back on it. And uh, the the uh, Weekly Standard editorial has the subhead, a quiet leader and a good one, that he actually was a very consequential president. But but it lacked the ego, the focus and the passions of our particular time. So could you could just talk a little bit about George W. Bush. He, he, he does almost, you know, I mean, history is going to, I think, treat him very, very kindly. But it was a much lower Let's say lower profile president, at least it felt in the moment. Yeah, you know, uh, Billy and I had been talking about this uh, earlier. Quiet is a very good word for it. And um, Bush was quite self consciously Reagan's successor. Um, and he admired Reagan, I'm sure. And actually, had heard him say wonderful things about Reagan. But. Um, his style was completely different, and Reagan was a show business figure. He was he was from Hollywood. He came with enormous charisma, and as we were saying, when when Reagan walked into a room of with a smaller gathering, I mean, he filled the room. Partly it's because he'd been a famous man for fifty years, um, but there was just something about the guy and the way he carried himself. Um, Bush, who I think was taller than Reagan, and you know, also very handsome, um, didn't fill a room the way Reagan did. And I think Bush knew that, and he wasn't ashamed of it. He's, you know, he, he was a different style of leader, and quieter is a, is a good, good way to put it. It's, he understood the way good leaders do. He understood what he was good at and what he wasn't good at. And a lot of the things that Reagan was very good at, he wasn't particularly good at, you know, speech giving for example um mm -hmm. he could do it when he had to but it wasn't his primary occupation as a as a leader and yeah. um, so he concentrated on other other things bill talk for a moment about one of the i, I think uh, un, uh, unsung accomplishments uh, and achievements of of, uh, of president bush was the the quiet way that he presided over the end of the Cold War. I was listening to a, a soundbite where somebody said, "Well, you don't sound you know elated enough about all of this." And he says, "Well, I'm not an emotional guy, but he very self consciously did not want to spike the football, um, even though he was the president who presided over something that very rarely happens in world history, which is the peaceful collapse of an empire." And his decisions had something to do with the 
peacefulness mm-hmm. of the collapse and I think actually the speed of the collapse. Now, there were controversies at the time. Some of us were a little more impatient. We, it were especially, he seemed to prop up Gorbachev a little longer than necessary. But at the end of the day, if you think about it from the fall of the Berlin Wall, which was November of 89, to the collapse of the Soviet Union, which is Christmas 91, that's a pretty, two years is not a bad time frame in which to accomplish the liberation of Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union itself, the, the falling apart of the Soviet Union. Uh, as well as some other things elsewhere in the world that were not trivial, kicking Saddam out of Kuwait and so forth. So it's a pretty extraordinary two years. It didn't feel uh, he was he didn't spike the football. Uh, he might have done more, I think, actually, and this was disputed. We argued about this at the time in the White House and out of to draw some lessons, maybe in a way it almost let people uh, move on too quickly in, in thinking about America's role in the world. But that's that's a hard thing to, to, to decide. There were pluses and minuses to the low-key way he handled it. But just in terms of the actual decisions he made, in terms of German unification, which he was uh, went for totally, which was controversial at the time, in terms of uh, insisting, ultimately, uh, you know, sticking, insisting on... The, the real fall of, 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 of communism, not just a kind of reformed communism. I think history will be very, very kind to him. And, and it's a pretty just amazing, if you think about those two years, mm-hmm. uh, you combine them with the domestic policy achievements, which a lot of conservatives were lukewarm about, to say the least, the Clean Air Act, the Americans mm-hmm. with Disabilities Act, the budget deal. That was really the end of an era. I guess Clinton carried it forward a little bit of the kind of bipartisan compromise that that you know, people don't like on either side and probably maybe there are things to complain legitimately about them. But at the end of the day, very few people want to go back and say that was a mistake, the Clean Air Act, or that was a mistake, the Americans for Disabilities Act, or even the budget deal, honestly. So, I mean, he deserves a fair amount of credit for that. Those those two years of, of uh, 80, late 89 through the end of 91, before we got into the re-election, were pretty... Uh, Astonishing! It's just a pure matter of governance. I've got to say, and and, and I remember and the run-up to the Gulf War, which we haven't mentioned. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was very much in favor of you know being tough as President Bush was, and I remember having many arguments with conservatives outside. I think Andy would remember this too, outside of the Bush sphere, who were Reaganites, basically very doubtful that President Bush was going to actually take military action to oust Saddam from Kuwait. There was a real sense, of, oh, he doesn't. That's not Bush's style, and he's going to Jim Baker's going to find a diplomatic compromise and we're going to back down at the end. I remember saying, look, I'm not privy to the most innermost discussions in the Oval Office, but my strong sense is that Bush is really committed to this, uh, and he turned out to be, and that was not uh, an important thing and not an easy thing, and the diplomatic mastery he showed in those months. I mean, I remember just, and I, again, wasn't part of the inner circle, so I would see it pretty much like everyone else, a little more sense, obviously, but, you know, wow, look what he did today in terms of you know, outmaneuvering those who wanted to accommodate Saddam. It was pretty, pretty amazing. Well, this is also goes back to the one of the paradoxes of of, of President Bush. Do, do you remember when the I'm sure you all do when when Newsweek had the cover, you know, the wimp factor that that he wasn't strong enough, that that he was uh, that he was not a fighter, which of course is valued uh, greatly these days. When in fact, uh, in retrospect, uh, George H. W. Bush was very strong. He was not at all. Not only was he a war hero. Uh, he led this country very competently uh, in, into into this war. In fact, uh, to to a certain extent, uh, you know, we talk a lot about American greatness, but he embodied it. He embodied it despite the fact that that he never had that image, and he never really claimed it for himself. Which again is is part of the inevitable contrast that people are going to draw with the current president. Well, yeah, it, and again, the, the the key is this this idea of quiet strength, um, which has also been a you know. 
a, a great American ideal. I mean, John Wayne doesn't scream, <laughs> you know, the great old Western actor. His his whole his his um, power is sort of coiled within him, and uh, any sort of bragging about it would just diminish uh, his his own sense of himself. And I think that Bush. Had it, not that Bush was like John Wayne, but I mean that that same kind of American ideal of if you got it, you don't flaunt it, and then yeah. when you need it, um, it's you can, the reserves are there to draw upon, and that the way Bill characterized the run up to the Gulf War is exactly an example of that. You know, Dana Carvey was describing how he did the his George Bush uh, Im- imitation, and he said he started off with Mr. Rogers, and then he added in John Wayne. And he's basically, it's the mixture of, of Mr. Rogers and John Wayne gives you President George H.W. Bush. Now, this may seem like a little bit of heavy lifting, but, you know, it, where in terms of conservatism, where does George H.W. Bush fall in, in terms of in terms of the trajectory of the conservative movement? Clearly, what we are living through now is a rejection of Bushism. And conservatives were always very, very conflicted. You know, you, you mentioned some of the things, the, the legislation he passed, the, the, the tax increase that broke his, uh, you know, read my lips pledge, the, the appointment of David Souter to the Supreme Court. On the other hand, um, he did champion many conservative values, including American in American strength. Um, so, really, how how should conservatives think about his presidency, Bill? I think, with respect and with maybe a greater appreciation that you can get a lot of good things done, even if you're not a pure movement conservative. I do think there he did carry forward things that President Reagan had started. So, we conservatives, those of us who came to Washington as Reaganites, can take some credit for the. Bush presidency as well. It would have been different, I think, if Bush had become president, perhaps in '81. In other words, if, if you hadn't had Reagan laying the groundwork. But uh, I mean, one way I've been thinking about it is: so I, I, he wasn't a movement conservative, but he was not—he wasn't not conservative either. He wasn't a liberal Republican, uh, and he no. you know, really did believe in markets, and he believed in American leadership around the world, uh, and he adjusted on the social issues to to to, to conservatism. Souter, he got persuaded. Uh, to be ironically, though, Souter, he was persuaded to a point by John Sununu, who was allegedly more of a conservative, so go, go figure it out, right? And then he appointed Clarence Thomas and stuck with him, incidentally, mm-hmm. in a totally brutal situation. Uh, Trump gets credit and probably deserves some for sticking with uh, Kavanaugh, but Bush stuck with Thomas in what I would say was even a, uh, well, as certainly as tough a situation and more unprecedented at the time. So, uh, you know, I, the way I've been thinking about it in contrast to our current president is there were Reagan, conser- Reagan Republicans and Bush Republicans when I came to Washington. Pretty distinct camps. I was more in the Reagan camp. And one reason, and Quayle's office was always viewed with some suspicion by some of the Bushies in the Bush White House as kind of too much of a Reaganite little enclave. Uh, then there became McCain Republicans and Bush Republicans. There have been other, uh, you know, splits. They all sort of do seem to pale into relative insignificance compared to the current moment, or I think they all have more in common with each other, perhaps it turns out, compared to being to a Trump Republican or a Trump conservative than, than we thought at the time. Uh, I, I want to offer a mild uh, dissent to uh, to a line in the in the Weekly Standard editorial about uh, President Bush, uh, which sort of dismisses his points of life initi- points of light initiative, uh, which of course was this program celebrating uh, national volunteerism, and they they describe it as uh, rightly thought footling and silly. Um, I probably did at the time as well. Uh, in in retrospect, though. I do think that it represented a, a politics of, uh, of of decency and national purpose 
that uh, that that shouldn't be looked down upon to you know to draw on American citizenship to draw upon gratitude and service to others you know is is in fact a, a worthy effort you know particularly as we're being torn apart uh, and in which you know in, in an era in which uh, there doesn't seem to be much of that uh, that sense of, of of shared purpose so I I, I, I don't want to to dismiss all of this well, well inevitably yeah, I'm sorry go ahead well I was I was just going to say you know if, if you look at the origin of that points of light phrase and you read it in in his masterful uh, address to the accepting the Republican nomination in 88 um, he's really talking about voluntary organizations, the mediating institutions, mm-hmm. the, the, the way people come together in their communities, LULAC and, and the Rotary Club and that, that kind of thing. These are important conservative people, values. Absolutely. Where, where I think people like me kind of start to shy away from it is when it becomes a codified national office of points of light, you know, which it did in the White House. And it was sort of um, – it's almost contrary to the idea of these – disorganized or or um, disconnected private undertakings with people helping their community when it's this sense that it really should be directed from Washington that people shy away mm-hmm. from sure so bill what we, any any memories of uh, of of the president i know you worked in the vice president's office but uh, you interacted with the president uh, what are you going to take with you you know, I did. I mean, Andy spent more time with him personally, and that's why his piece is so terrific, because when you're a speechwriter, even if you're not at the, you know, I was at senior staff meeting, and I was sort of, I guess, nominally a, a, a cut above mm-hmm. uh, uh, mere speechwriters like Andy. <laughs> but, um, you know, he actually spent time to working on the speeches, whereas I was Quail's chief of staff, so I was senior staff. I, every morning at 7.30, I went to the meeting with Sununu and then Skinner, uh, you know, where we, with Scowcroft and Darman and very senior people. And I interacted with all those people, but I, because I was the vice president's chief of staff, I didn't spend that much time in the Oval. I, I saw the president a lot in meetings in the cabinet room and Roosevelt room. One of those staffers, when you see those photos, you know, they're the principals around the table, the president, the vice president, the cabinet members, the foreign leaders or the uh, congressional leaders or whoever it might be, the business leaders. And then there's a bunch of anonymous staff sitting in those chairs against the wall. And there's a lot of very careful thought given to who sits where. And, and I was pretty senior, so I sat pretty much behind the vice president. So I actually spent a lot of time, the president spent a lot of time looking at me because he was he sits, you know, across, the vice president sits across from the president. The vice president's chief of staff sits in a chair against the wall, kind of right behind the vice president in case he has to, like, turn to me to get a piece of paper or something. And so I, I remember, like, and, and, and I, and I was talking with Andy about this, who experienced this more firsthand, I suppose. I did a little bit. He had a kind of ironic sense about him, which is yeah. a little unusual for, I think unusual, maybe not for someone like him. He was both very, uh, you know, proud to be president and very attentive to the formalities of the presidency in a good way, I would say. You know, very much in the, this is a foreign leader here. We're going to have a courteous exchange. This is congressional leaders. I'm not going to presume to, on their turf and so forth. But there was often a bit of a, I don't know what you want to call it. It was like postmodern sort of self-irony uh, about mm-hmm. what he was doing. And I don't know, Andy, you probably have a, a sense of that too. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was almost like a kind of a distance um, thing where he's sort of watching himself be president. And uh, I think that was part of his natural modesty. It's like, look, Ma, <laughs> somehow I got to be president. And and I think that's the only sane reaction a sane person can have towards the enormous uh, weight that's placed on a person. I mean, I suppose if you grow up as the son of a senator and then you're in public life from when was he first elected to Congress, 66, something yeah, like that. Yeah, so for yeah. 20 plus years when you become president, you've been vice president eight years, 
you've seen so much that either it can take you in two ways. Either you become a ludicrously self-important blowhard who thinks you're entitled to all this deference and pomp and circumstance, or you've seen enough that you sort of have a bit of a wry attitude towards it and a bit of an ironic attitude towards it. And he had very much... Uh, he th- he had that very much. There was a sort of yeah. a twinkle in his eye and a little bit of a wink sometimes as he went through these things. Though, um, though in the SSA, he also conducted himself with great, as you'd expect, great courtesy and propriety. I only had, compared to you gentlemen, I had uh, almost almost no in- encounters with him except for uh, one time after his presidency when he was speaking in Milwaukee, and I do not remember what the event was at all. What I do remember was, you know, I was the master of ceremonies, and my job was to introduce the former president, um, which I did, you know, former President George, you know, H.W. Bush. And then there was this long pause, and nobody came out. And it was like I'm standing there. I have, you know, given the introduction. The applause has started. And it goes on for probably more than a minute. And at that point, I said, you know, you know, President Bush again, and he did, did not come out. And so I, I said at the time, because I couldn't think of anything else, saying, I feel like I should be announcing. And now the Von Trapp family singers. <laughs> they the same from And what I remember was that he was amused by that and apologized for the delay with the screw up. But that's my only memory, the George H.W. Uh, Bush Von Trapp family singer. <laughs> you know, you speak, people keep talking about the, uh, the graciousness of the man. I, I find one of the most extraordinary stories, and it's been told over and over and over again, but it's still striking. The, you know, how humiliating it must be to be the president and to be defeated after one term, but how extraordinary it must be to then create a a friendly, almost paternal relationship with the man who threw you out of office. And the relationship between President Bush and Bill Clinton is really, again, one of these throwbacks when you can be political opponents without being, you know, viciously insulting, you know, and, and, you know, the the gap between the era we're in now and and that is extraordinary. Does anybody want to just comment on how President Bush would have gotten over the disappointment and the bitterness of defeat to become such close friends with Bill Clinton. You know, I think for him, the presidency was the key there. I, I don't know that deep in his heart, he didn't have a certain, I don't know what his view was of mm. Bill Clinton. And I do think Clinton's a charming guy and they worked together on a lot of humanitarian efforts. And I, I'm not meaning to, I don't mean to question the sincerity of a kind of affection there. But I think it was more, more important still was the fact that he was now president and you have to, tried to help the new president. He said in that handwritten note he left, he was, he was he wanted to help the new president. And even when he wasn't so new anymore, he stood there as in the line of presidents willing to be supportive and, uh, and constructive. And I think that's been true, you know, for, for each of the succeeding presidents, even with uh, President Bush with respect, the second President Bush with respect to Clinton and President Obama with respect to his predecessors. And I've got to say, it, it probably met for the final manifestation of it, I suppose, was his request that President Trump be invited to the funeral mm-hmm. on Wednesday, uh, even though I don't think President Bush had a very high opinion of President Trump and certainly resented the attacks on his kids, his sons, uh, George and Jeb. But, uh, you know, the presidency trumped everything, I think, the office. Yeah, and there's an, also an element of, of someone of Bush's class and age where membership matters. And and these right. guys are members of the most exclusive club in the world to use the old cliche and um you know so it, clinton is somebody that understands something that bush understands and only four or five other people alive understand it which is what it's like to sit in the oval office um 
So, so there's that element of it. Too. You know, you, you mentioned the funeral that is coming up, and I can't help but think about uh, John McCain's funeral. And uh, Bill, I know that you had mentioned that uh, this was one of the most uh, moving events that you had been to uh, in, your, in your long Washington career. And and once again, it's going to be the celebration of these uh, of these lost values of of graciousness and honor and and uh, after the McCain funeral, of course, in the back of our minds, we were wondering is you know. Are the people who are sitting watching this, are they um, inspired by this? Are they shamed by this? Um, um, will this change anything? And at least so far, the answer is no. But here's another opportunity to uh, to celebrate values that really do seem in eclipse these days. Yeah, I don't know what effect. You never know what effect some of these mm-hmm. things have. We talked, to, I mentioned earlier, that Reagan 84 speech. You know, things have a sort of effect, sometimes mm-hmm. a, a little bit delayed. I, you need people to, younger people, however, to step up and say, and embrace what's living about those values and those uh, principles and, and those aspects of character. Otherwise, it becomes a nostalgic look back, uh, you know, at two very impressive men, two war heroes who died in a year. So I think it's important that younger people, you can't, they can't have an effect, these things can't have an effect simply as spectacles. They have to have an effect because someone stands up and says, I want to carry that tradition forward. Gentlemen, thank you so much for uh, joining me this morning, uh, Andy Ferguson and Bill Crystal. You can find Andy's piece up at the Weekly Standard website. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again. <laughs>